Hello and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Comics Podcast, episode number 32. I'm Rory, and I'm joined by one other nerd, Ryan. Hello. Uh, Carissa and Christina are stuck in the Phantom Zone this week. Together we're going to take on a week's comics. Each week we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now and go back and read your books and then come back. Each week one of us picks their favorite book of the week, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I'm that nerd. This this week, the pick of the week goes to all new X-Men number nine. The companion song is Unlovable by the Smiths. Why'd you choose that one? In the story, how he's kind of emo-ish and so that song is the ultimate we're black on the outside you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah emo kid apocalypse is definitely wearing his skinny jeans and so i figured he definitely has some morrissey playing in the background in one way shape or form X-Men number 9, written by Dennis Hopeless, pencils by Mark Bagley, inks by Andrew Hennessy, colors by Nolan Woodard, and of course Marvel. With this one, we start off with, it's a birthday party, y'all, it's Boy Apocalypse's birthday, happy birthday, soon-to-be maniacal dictator. (laughs) So he's starting off with Apocalypse's birthday, so he's kind of getting down with the other X-Men at the birthday party, and he's not really feeling all super happy and stuff, he's being a little emo. He goes off, and he gets... You talking about one of the little bamps that he gets? He goes off and he picks up pickles to take himself back to his hometown. So he poof, bingo, bangos over to his hometown and he's kind of walking down memory lane and, you know, talking about how he wants to get an ice cream and hang out with all the dudes, do this and do that. And then he realizes that, well, he doesn't realize, but I mean, he knows all along, but it's like, so he has like this illusionary image in his head of, of what his hometown was, which is, you know, Midwest 1950s farm town. I thought it was a nice little been on Superman there with the small little Kansas town with the nice family that raises you. But of course, it's emo apocalypse, so shit don't work out. (laughs) It's totally like the Superman type neighborhood, Superman growing up. And then it's like, oh, but that doesn't exist. I grew up in a cloning tube. This is all false memories. It's like, oh man, no wonder you destroy everything. (laughs) You know, he's talking about how everybody's afraid to piss him off because they don't want to be the person that turns him into the megalomaniac that eventually ends up being the uh, executioner of all things living. <laughs> that was a fucking great line when he said that. I seriously lost it when he started talking about that. I was like, oh man, that's that's bad. It reminds me of when you're going through some hard times or maybe like you got a cast on your leg or something and everybody's way too fucking nice to you. <laughs> yeah. Like, could you just treat me like a normal person? But in his case, it's like if you happen to be the person that pushes him too far, it's like uh, the end of life itself is happening because of you were the one that turned Boy Apocalypse down for a date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so anyways he you know he comes back and then he he brings pickles back and then he's talking to beast at the same time beast is working on this time machine he notices this weird egyptian helmet thing he's like oh what's this and beast tells him oh that's the uh it's an ancient egyptian sorcery and it opens opens your third eye to the horrors of mystical the mystical realm and you know don't put that on or else and so of course what's he do he puts it on it's like the big red button that says don't push me yeah and he's like ooh. so that ends up transporting boy apocalypse into ancient egypt which somehow some way he understands what everybody's saying there's this group of desert warriors that are all masked and stuff and they're executing what it seems like a merchant group is what it looks like looks like a caravan or something yeah one of the characters in the mask they're like oh you know you haven't cut a man's throat yet so here we're gonna make you do it now you know it's a little murder initiation and then that's when beast and apocalypse pop up out of nowhere they have a little fight scene blah 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 fast forward a little while later they both escape when one of the when the guy who's supposed to be slitting somebody's throat in the mask he kind of like gives him a funny look and they go racing off into the desert beast tries to catch up with them you know ends up getting tracked down by one of the other desert warriors in the end they basically end up eluding these guys escaping into the city where the guy with the mask uh, prince and he's like oh you know i, I want to uh, hear where you came from, and he reveals his mask, and he looks exactly like Apocalypse does, just with a shaven head. Interesting, I thought. It was a good start. I liked the artwork. I liked the overall story. First one, I was like, oh, boy, Apocalypse, all right. You know, I think he's an interesting character, for sure. Yeah. I'm really curious what they're going to do with this one, really. I mean, I really like Dennis Hopeless. He's the writer on Spider-Woman, which is one of my favorite books. So this one, I like the writing on this. Mark Bagley's art is just spectacular. Mm. Looks really good. I like that this book does a lot of different moods at the same time like you've got when the x-men are partying like they all get their little funny moments i like uh kid gladiator the greatest dj of all time dropping the sick beats on everybody <laughs> that was pretty funny oh that was good and then you get to see them all just kind of like playing around because they're all teenagers you know with like their superpowers and then you get the kind of like you were saying like the mopey emo journey back into your memories into like the perfect town that never existed which i thought was kind of cool i also thought it was interesting that his own memories have the town turning on him he knows he's a monster he's bad, he thinks. So he's got the town refusing to take his money, and the jocks driving by and throwing a soda at him, like, all that kind of stuff. Those are all, none of that actually happens. That's all in his mind, which I think is an interesting way of showing how he thinks the world thinks about him. Which, like you're saying, if you don't want to be the one, push Kid Apocalypse over the edge. You should just let him copy your math homework. Like... (laughs) Uh, don't piss him off. Assume that when they had done that, uh, you know, whoever it was that put him in the cloning chamber, when they were implanting his memories, I figured that they had to implant like a stereotypical mutant, you know, upbringing where it's like, oh, you have this happy home, but at the same time, you know, you're a mutant, so people wouldn't accept you, you know, and you're, so that's why you're with us, you know, to make it all flesh out and shit like that. Yeah, I mean, he talks about how, like, basically force-fed him happiness and utopia to try and keep him from turning into apocalypse. Yes. I liked the stuff in Ancient Egypt. Like, I didn't quite understand what was going on at first, but it looked really cool, and, like, the action was moving along really well. And then at the end where you see that that's, like, another version of Apocalypse that he's ran off with, I thought that was really interesting. Like, I just, I really enjoyed Dennis Hopeless's writing. The art looks great. This was one of the, I think this is by far the best X-Men title that's out right now. The other ones, I think you've called them third string superheroes <laughs> and second rate wrestlers, you know, but this, 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 this one's pretty good. Brawlers, yeah. Who just retired, by the way, uh, or just got laid off. I saw. I really liked it. I'm definitely glad you brought that up, Ryan, because I was definitely going to mention the fact that I've been shooting 
shitting on a lot of X-Men titles as we've been through here since I've joined up with the crew. This one, I don't want to shit on it at all. I mean, like you said, the artwork's beautiful. The storyline's good. I like the characters. They do a great job of actually making the characters feel real and lifelike. They're like real humans, not not some weird comic book facsimile. Yeah, and I mean, everything else that I've really complained about other comic books, I mean, this does not have. Solid artwork. Everything's from proportion. Every, everything looks great in this. I mean, it's just, I think it's a phenomenal comic book. Everything's top-notch. I really liked it, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with the rest of it. I'm going to give this a good four and a half bloody scimitars. It, it's just fucking great. I really enjoyed it. I, it makes me really want to look forward to the next one. I give it four sucking gut wounds when they stab Beast <laughs> in the stomach and leave him there to bleed out. Pretty, pretty brutal. Oh, the life in the desert. <laughs> yeah. So I had, actually this was one of Christina's books, but she, again, like we said, stuck in the Phantom Zone. She'll work her way out. Can't be there this week. So I had Black Panther number two, or as my autocorrect likes to call it, Balcony Panther number two. <laughs> from Marvel Comics, written by Donahisi Coates, art by Brian Stelfraise, colors by Laura Mart. Black Panther number two is basically the story of Wakanda rotting from the inside. It's also kind of the story of what leadership really entails, what being a king means. There's lots of times where Black Panther wants to just go out and solve these problems himself. His counsel is always telling him, you can't just go and be a superhero. You're the king. What if something happens to you? The whole country will collapse without you. So he's kind of limited there. I mean, he points out that the regular troops that they want to send are not prepared to go up against a psychic lady, but he's been trained to defend his mind, so he would be the best person to go. So he does eventually go, but he has, that's a good point that they have, that he is king of Wakanda. He's not just some superhero dude in some tights and a cape. He has bigger responsibilities than that. There are a lot of stories going on in this, and I think that's the biggest flaw in the book, that there are... Each one of the separate stories that's going on, they're all really good, but I feel like it can be a little confusing as to what is actually going on as it jumps back and forth between them. The art from Brian Stelfreeze is beautiful looking. I like that the aesthetic that they use is basically not based on Western Europe, that you've got a lot of African and Middle Eastern images. There's just beautiful images that I haven't really seen anywhere else. The superhero armor looks awesome. I just, I really like the look of the book far more than I like the pacing of the story. I think that's the big downfall of this is that there's too much going on, that there's lots of really smart things going on, but you don't really have enough time to really kind of focus on each of the little elements that's really good on its own. Like he could have cut out, and I think I said this in the last review, that there are probably three or four storylines going on here, which is probably about twice too many, in my opinion. They're all really, like I said, well-written and intelligent, and there's there's big ideas taking place, but it's a little too crowded to, for me, for my taste, for uh, to make a really great comic. You know, I'd kind of have to fall in suit with you on that one. The artwork in this is just fucking phenomenal. Black Panther looks just amazing. Everything is, there's a lot of really great visuals, and it goes, it varies back and forth between being simple in some shots and being very complex in others. The fight scenes are fucking phenomenal. They're still superhero-y to a certain extent, but I mean, Black Panther is a superhero. At the same time, they're I think that they're believable. I do like the storylines, even though I'm with you on that, that there's a little bit too much going on, you know, that it could have maybe been a little bit better served with a little less to tie it in 
together. Like you said, there's probably about there's like four different storylines going on. I would say probably just subtracting one would have probably done enough to like balance it out. And it's not like there's one that's bad that you could just be like, oh, take out this one because it sucks. Like they're all good. Yeah. So it's really hard to yeah. to know. Like this needs an, uh, like a, a stronger editor to you know make those decisions where the artist has really great ideas and you got to tell them can't do all of that. I definitely agree with that. I mean, there's the book's great. They've got great storylines going on. I would just would rather see with all these got going on. I mean, who knows how the arc's going to go as it goes on down the road. Maybe they're just trying to develop right now, have it all bunched together and then kind of separate it up as the plot thickens. But yeah, there's just too much that's going on. As much as that was a little bit distracting, I really can't complain about this one. I fucking loved every second of it. Phenomenal artwork. The fact that they incorporated like some of the things that have been happening in recent last 20, 30 years of African history was pretty awesome. I like how they show that there's different, there's a lot of different factions that make political climate complicated and you know incorporate that into all of this comic book i mean they've got a lot of stuff going on you've got a superhero and a king of a nation so i don't know i just think it's really interesting and once again another one that it's like i really can't wait to get my hands on the next i will say one good thing about tanahisi coates here in his writing is the story is very rich like it's not a book you can really read through very quickly because there's lots of thoughts that are taking place in here that are not not that simple because there are there's definitely bad people who are like the equivalent of like bandits that have risen up and are the like corrupt officials that are you know imprisoning people keeping women in cages and abusing them and doing really horrible things like those are clearly bad guys but then you have the two forces that are against trying to stop them like you have black panther Mm -hmm. who's representing like the monarchy and then you have his this like rebellion, which is really similar to I think like the Arab Spring. I think that's what they're trying to bring in with there. They're against the monarchy. Like they have this cool image where they have this plane and they write these like letters in fire. It says like no one man. Man, I don't. I mean, Black Panther is awesome and I really like him, but I kind of part of me like agrees with like they're not being a monarchy, you know. Yeah. So that's that there's no clear bad guy there. I mean, except for the people who are truly horrible. It's just, it's really interesting. There's complexity, and when they try and show you the horrors of what's happening in Wakanda, they hit you right in the gut with it. Like, you feel the people's pain here. So it's it's got its moments. It's not bad. It's definitely one of the more, I think, intelligent and thoughtful comics that are out there. I can't really complain too much about it. I think overall, it's pretty good, and I think it's only going to get better as Ta-Nehisi Coates writes more comics. He's a great author, and I think he just needs to learn a little bit of the comic craft of what you can fit in a comic book. I ended up giving it three Midnight Angels. Oh, you bastard. You always take what I'm getting. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I was going to use Midnight Angels. Those look pretty awesome, don't they? Yeah, they are. Oh, jeez. You know, I agree with what you're saying. I'm a little less critical on it. I think that the artwork's stunning. The The storyline's great. It's a little bit too busy for my taste. All in all, it's still, I think it's one of the strongest titles that I've read since I've been on with the show. So I'm going to give it four Thugs with Uzis. There you go. Great title. I really enjoyed it. So over to over to Aftershock. Oh, yeah. Jackpot number two, Aftershock Comics, written by Ray Fox, art by Marco Falia. Jackpot number two, when we left off, the uh, crew had just pulled off a heist where weird shit started happening, kind of informed us about this weird little shadow group that had been going on. And one of the characters in the book, Felicia, or the cold reader, as they like to call her, uh, she's like the ex spy, you know, operative type. She had actually died during that operation, and but then 
by some mysterious circumstance had made it out. So we start off with her, and she's just kind of image in her head of herself up in flames, you know, and then they're, they're like, hey, are we ready? You know, pop to her, like, staying there, like, staring off into space. They basically, they're on another heist. Everybody's talking about what they're doing. She's trying to uh, give them this bottle of vodka that she's injected some sort of sedative into. The whole team's all set up and they're, you know, doing their thing, talking over the radio. Oh, eventually what happens is you have this shadow group talking with this guy about the trial majestic. So they're talking about this trial that they're essentially putting somebody in the group through and they keep on talking about, you know, this distortion that's happening that happened on the yacht a month ago. Then you see you see the guy that they were talking to in the room with the with the crew that's basically uh, drugging the people and they're stealing this money. Apparently this person wasn't expected to be there. So they go through and they do their thing and then they basically get the gun from the guy, they take the money. The genius chair, she basically opens up this uh, paper and it's got all this like this math equation on it. Then all of a sudden the sniper starts firing in the room, blah blah blah. To cut the, the story a little bit short, basically what happens is that she kind of figures out that this is like some sort of formula where she can basically change reality, you know, using this and actually change change what like the order that things happen. Once she figures this out, she starts using it, you know, get everybody away. They also find out they run into the guy that was in the room like 12 different times. And they're like, oh, what is this twin? How many of them do they have? Blah, blah, blah. So that's basically the gist of most of the story here. She figures out that she has these powers and then they get away. And then there's these like these guys from this creepy other organization. It's like basically like testing them. And I think that's the group that started the trial Majestic to bring her into their group if she can survive. What are they doing it for? Who knows? That's basically how the plot of the book goes once again i think it's a it's kind of the same thing that happened with jackpot number one you know it's it's a good title it's definitely got that bank robber feel you have no fucking clue where they're gonna go with it that's true it's constantly surprising (laughs) me really is there's always like something new around every corner which i guess in a way that's typical of the whole heist setup is that there's always something that's going down the way you don't expect it and that's what makes it good another solid performance on jackpot's part i thought you know i really enjoyed the art the cover art was even like catchy just overall, I find it interesting. I can't wait till the, the avalanche finally starts kind of going over the peak so that we actually start to see what's really going on. That's the only complaint I've really had for it is that the first two issues so far, it's like there's a lot going on and it doesn't get very far. And so you've got a lot of questions. I think it's going to be really promising myself. What do you think, Ryan? I enjoyed it. There's a thing that Quentin Tarantino does where his characters have really interesting dialogue that doesn't really advance the plot but kind of tells you about their characters. And there's this part where these two guys are talking about this idea of the usefulness of the useless, which I thought was really interesting. That, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a bird and you sing too well, they're going to put you in a cage. And if you're a bird and you, you know, you taste too good, they're going to hunt you and eat you. But if you're just kind of right in the middle, you know, you can live a, a free life. So they talk about, guy talks about how that's what he always tries to do, is, is fly under the radar and not be noticed. And I thought that was just a really interesting little conversation that they did not need to have, but I appreciate them having put it in. I think it makes it more than just moving from, you know, plot point A to plot point B. If you actually get a little more than that. The thing with the the math equation that they find. I don't want to say it came out of left field, but I was pleasantly surprised when I saw that and then saw her start warping reality around her. As I read this, this book reminds me a lot of Inception. In Inception, each person has a specific job that they're doing. You have like the architect who creates like the world that they're in, and that's basically what she can now do. She starts doing stuff where she starts... You see, there's this one scene where these two guns are like fused together after she does some reality bending stuff. 
that I thought was kind of a neat little image that nobody really comments on. Like they pick it up and they're like, what is this? But they don't really have time to talk about it very much. And then there's also at the end, there's this scene where they're going through this MC Escher's uh, like staircase that I thought was a really interesting visual where I don't know if they're in like another reality now or other people are warping reality around them. It's really interesting to see them running through basically an MC Escher painting. And I really like the idea that there's this uh, hidden calculus that they're using to manipulate the world. I thought that was very interesting. So lots of interesting ideas. It goes places that I didn't expect it to. I like that each person is really distinct and has a, a really specific job that they're doing and that they're all good at different things, but together they form something really powerful. It's like heist team Voltron. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm really enjoying it. Once again, I thought it was a very strong title. I'm with you on that. You know, it's something that I didn't really think to, to, to point out was that the dialogue in this is just killer. It's, it's very cinematic. There's a lot of stuff going on. I'm going to give it three and a half piles of fused wonder twins i really like the title i think it's great i think they need to move a little bit faster with it just to get things going but i do think whatever they got going on is is going to be really interesting once once the ball starts rolling i'm okay with it moving a little slow and being a little confusing not confusing because it's written poorly but because we're learning as the characters are learning so i'm okay with that like, I don't feel that we don't understand because we missed something or the writer didn't explain it very well. We just, we don't know yet. But as we learn more, the world makes, like, more more sense. I will give it three and a half M.C. Escher staircases. So I had a little trip down south for us. I had Southern Bastards number 14 from Image Comics, written by Jason Aaron, art by Jason Latour. What can you say about Jason Aaron? The guy writes freaking masterpieces and this is probably one of his most personal stories so this is the final story in the homecoming arc but i really feel that this is a completely standalone story and you'll have to confirm this for me rory but i feel like if you had never read southern bastards you could have picked up this issue read it and understood fully what is going on maybe not the larger plot implications of what they're doing but it's it's self-contained and very character-driven. This one is the story of Tubbs's daughter coming back from, I'm not sure if she was in Afghanistan or Iraq, but she's coming back home after her father's been murdered to clean out his house and figure out what happened to him. There's what I thought was an interesting part in the beginning where she's talking about how she was part of like a special unit that was designed to interact with like the women uh, in these areas that they were supposed to go in and gain their trust. And these people were uneducated and very religious and closed-minded and didn't like outsiders. And she's like, oh, so living in the South has prepared me (laughs) perfectly for this job. (laughs) which I thought was kind of an interesting correlation between, you know, the mountains of like Kandahar and rural Alabama, you know, that they have probably a lot more in common than either one of those groups of people would like to admit. Yeah. There's moments in here that are uncomfortable, but feel very honest to me. There's a part where she gets called out of the house by the, the police. And she says that, you know, she, you know, did a tour of duty, but this is the moment where she felt the closest to being shot is when she's surrounded by the three white police officers as an African American woman, you know, she felt extreme danger. So I thought that was, was an interesting observation and I don't think she's wrong. I think she has every right in the world to feel hmm. on edge. So then you also have there's this dog that's running around her dad's house and just 
kind of destroying the yard and crapping on everything. And it's it's the neighbor, neighbor's dog. The neighbor, you know, comes over when he sees her there. He starts talking a bunch of shit to her. And she's she's had enough of this uh, these, these neighbors and this dog. So she gets a bunch of cayenne pepper and feeds it to the dog. So the dog gets, like, really sick. She notices that her dad, like, riding lawnmower is missing. And she finds it in their, their shed that they took his riding lawnmower after he was killed. So she goes and gets it back. And there's this confrontation, this really nasty confrontation with the, the neighbors over this where they basically start you know talking much shit to her and then there's this one time where like this guy basically called her like a bitch and that's when you see her marine training come in and i really appreciated this fight scene it's not just like random punches like she's doing very specific things to them and i appreciate that she's like when she's fighting them it's a fight to drop them and finish them that she is going for all their vulnerable you know vulnerable spots it's like lots of like wrist locks and heels to the nose and like knees to the groin it's brutal and it's fast which i think is was it m MRAP that's the marine combat training I think yeah and actually that sequence she does in there is straight out of their playbook yeah. <laughs> it's like move for move exactly what they do I like that when you have fights in comic books where it's not generic punch or generic kick like they're actually what I feel is a real fight yeah. So there's this fight. She fights all these people. One of the neighbors, girlfriends or whatever, comes like running out of the house with like a kitchen knife, you know, and she's got her little like Daisy Duke shorts and her halter top and like no shoes. She takes her down. And then there's this little kid that she's been kind of not exactly being friendly with, but the kid is, was clearly like curious about her. That's another little detail. My, my grandparents are from the South, so there are lots of things in this book that ring true to me. Like there's a part where the kid gets in trouble for not exactly talking to her, but kind of like watching her and, you know, doing stuff he shouldn't be doing. And the dad tells him to go like, go cut a switch, you know, from the tree and don't make it a small one. And I remember <laughs> my grandmother telling me the exact same thing, like word for word. So that, that was very authentic to me. So kind of after she beats the crap out of these neighbors, the kid is standing there and she tells him to go like cut a switch for the dad, you know, and I was thinking like, oh, the kid's going to go do it. And it'll be like him throwing off the, the shackles of his you know, racist, violent, ignorant parents but nope nope so there's as much as this book feels like the south and you get all of the nastiness and close-mindedness and of the south in here there's a word that they've never used in the book and they use that Mm -hmm. word now and when you see it come out of like this little kid's mouth like it's very clearly something he's heard his parents say hundreds of times because he just says it very casually as if it's just like a matter of fact and they have her reaction face to that and i thought that was a really powerful little little panel there so southern bastards like i said to me is a book very much about a, a time and a place and that as much as the people are characters in this book i feel like craw county itself is a, a character here so this is the kind of the end of the homecoming arc so you've got all of these characters coming together you've learned all of their motivations for why they're doing what they're doing and now things are going to come to a head so i love jason aaron's writing jason latour's artwork for here feels really rough but in like a way like these people to me when i look at them they've lived like hard lives and the art i think kind of reflects that so i i love southern bastards it was our first pick of the week for four color nerds and i still love it you bastard you took everything i was going to say about it (laughs) (laughs) You know, to jump off what you were 
saying earlier, you know, this is my first ride with Southern Bastards, and you know, Ryan's exactly right. This is my first time into it, and I couldn't tell that we were midway through a plot or, or, or tw- towards the end of it. It was really good. The story's very engrossing, really draws you in. The artwork is, like Ryan said, it, it, it's rough. There's rough artwork, and then there's rough artwork that lends to it, and I think that this was, in this case, like, even though it's it's very rough artwork, it's charming, and it definitely lends to the story. It, it gives you that that small southern town kind of feel to it with its with its simplicity and its kind of roughness. I mean, overall, like, this was great. I couldn't have been more pleased, and I wouldn't have even known that this was really, like, deep into it. They, it was really well written. Well, that's one thing that Southern Bastards does, is it'll give you, like, one or two issues from each character's point of view. So you're learning about the county, but there is an overall plot line that's going on. But in those individual arcs, it's very much about them. Ah. There's arcs about the coach that are completely self-contained. There's arcs about like the deacon that are contained. So you can jump in on an issue and not feel like you've missed anything because it's they're all very personal stories. Gotcha. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's a great story, great artwork. I enjoyed every second of it. I ended up giving it four riding lawnmowers. <laughs> I'll give it four roll tides. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you don't wait for Auburn around these parts? <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a buddy that was from Alabama, and I actually had to ask him, about that whole thing and so he explained to me the whole rivalry down there and so yeah since it was from alabama i had to send one out to alabama band there <laughs> <laughs> so another image book this was also one of christina's picks oh are we on to grizzly shark now? we're on to grizzly shark jump the shark Oh, God. This is one of Christina's picks. Grizzly Shark. Image Comics. This is number uh, Grizzly Shark's number two image comics, written by Ryan Otley, art by Ryan Otley, colors by Ivan... I think it's Palencia. Palencia? Yeah, I don't fucking know. Sorry about that, Ivan, uh, trying to get your name right there. I think one of the main reasons that Christina chose this book is Carissa is, is definitely mortally terrified of sharks, so... Oh, <laughs> Carissa uh, definitely wasn't going to be here this week, so we're like, it's time for the sharks. Gotcha. Yeah, what can I say about this one? Pretty much the title sums it all up. I have to admit, I I only made it halfway through this (laughs) one because... Basically, there's sharks that are roaming around hunting people. They're land sharks that are hunting people. Um, Clever land sharks, yeah. Yeah, clever land sharks that are out there hunting people and eating them. There's a bunch of random scenes. There's what I assume is the main characters where there's this big, like, muscled, like, simpleton and a guy that's bitten half that, like, stops somebody, you know, so they can hitch a ride with them. And there's this weird banter that goes on and then... Like, he calls the doctor that's there, like, a bitch or something like that. And, like, the guy threatens to throw him out. And then there's, like, peas on him, even though he doesn't have a digestive tra- I don't know. You know, that's about as far as I fucking made it on this piece of shit. I'm going to tell you guys right now. You guys have heard me every fucking week. I always find a fucking comic to shit on. And this is going to be the one. I get that it's not supposed to be, you know, in, in defense. I was talking with Christina earlier, and she was saying it's not supposed to be taken seriously. I get that. But this is kind of like, you got that little brother that'll say, anything to fucking be funny and cool and whatever and he just ends up sounding like an idiot that's kind of the way i feel about this whole fucking storyline it's just like what the fuck they just threw a bunch of random shit together and it it just really just got to the point where i just couldn't do it anymore and i was like fuck this i can't even believe i'm wasting my time so i at one point or another probably about halfway through or so just had enough and couldn't go any farther i I like the artwork i mean the artwork's 
pretty damn good. I can't stand the story, though. This is probably like the worst story I've ever fucking read. Ryan Otley is the artist on Invincible. He's a really good artist. That's that's not in doubt in this. There are some really spectacular scenes of sharks just eating the shit out of just coming out of like the woods and and biting people. I kind of I think went into it with the trying to have fun with it because I knew it was not going to be be a serious uh, books. I even went back and read Grizzly Shark number one so I wouldn't get lost on the plot. <laughs> <laughs> the plot is very subjective. Here. I was about to say, was there really a call for that? <laughs> <laughs> This kind of reminds me of if, like, sort of like a Ren and Stimpy level of kind of violence and randomness, maybe combined with some Family Guy cutscenes for some of the stuff that happens that's just kind of random. It has its amusing moments to me, but overall, I think if you like, if you like sharks and you're not named Carissa, you might enjoy this, but it is crazy and random, very violent. It's an odd, it's not, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it's like, oh God, Christina and I have been friends forever. She's gorgeous. She's awesome. She's intelligent. She's fun to hang out with, but she's fucking weird too. <laughs> and of course, that's probably the reason why we've been friends for so long. And, and this one is a testament to Christina's fucking weirdness right here. <laughs> Did you make it to the part with the, the zombie child? Uh, yes, yes. Actually, that's about as far as I got, <laughs> okay. which I was like, oh God, how much more can you jump the shark about, a, about <laughs> land sharks? Yeah, I think that's about where I stopped was like right after that because it's like, okay, what am I fucking doing this? Oh. I really think Ren and Stimpy is the benchmark for this. If you like Ren and Stimpy, you'll probably enjoy like this. Like a lot. Like you still watch it and you're in your 30s. You own the DVDs. Yeah, this is the you, book for you then. On a Saturday night, you're trying to twist your significant other's arm to let you watch it just one more time. <laughs> this will probably be good for you. It, it has its moments. It's got some some funny visual gags. It's, it's a weird one. What did you end up giving, Grizzly Shark? Oh, God. Yeah, this is going to be my first. Uh, I'm going to give this one dirty starfish asshole because, I mean, if, if I was taking a shit out in the woods and I had to wipe my ass with something and this was there, I still wouldn't do it. That's how bad it is. <laughs> From my opinion. <laughs> I think I must have liked it a little better than you. I will give it three and a half clever land sharks. I I still like Ren and Stimpy, so. <laughs> okay. Well, it looks like our, our evaluation was correct then. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's very subjective. If you go into this expecting like a serious, why you would read Grizzly Shark and expect a serious commentary on, you know, whatever, you're not going to get it. But if you just want hyper violence and humor plus sharks, this is the one for you. Just a goddamn minute there. First of all, I wasn't expecting clever social commentary. (laughs) It says it right in the title. I mean, I was coming in expecting this to be, well, a story about grizzly shark so but it's just yeah it's just too weird for me it's too out there and there's another book called sea bear so grizzly shark and sea bear are companion <laughs> books to each other where they 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 were like basically drinking at a bar one night and we're talking about what if like you know there was a shark that ended up in the woods and a bear that ended up in the water oh god so so issue three is gonna be grizzly shark versus sea bear so. this is what happens you know if you work at like marvel or dark horse or any of the other image whoever after every Everybody goes home and everybody meets up at the the bar that everybody that works at the company drinks at. This is what happens around 2 a.m. or maybe even afterwards for the people that brought whiskey with them.
them. <laughs> this feels like kind of like a, a running joke that people have been telling each other back and forth that they've put down on paper, you know? Definitely, definitely, yes. Okay, that, that's a good way of putting it. It's, it's like somebody's inside joke that they're finally like, let's just do it, man. We've been talking about this since we were like in like seventh grade. Exactly. Kind of very tonally different. I had I had Archie number eight from Archie Comics, written by Mark Wade, art by Veronica Fish, colors by Andre Seismanaskowitz. I butchered that. Seisman, I, I don't know. I can't even do it. A long Eastern European name. Archie is... I really enjoy the new, the relaunch of the Archie comics, which if you had tried to tell me that I would be liking Archie comics, I would have thought you were insane. But I feel like this one really kind of takes the classic feel of Archie and updates it to a setting that doesn't feel contrived and, you know, as fake. And I think contrived is like the word I really want to use for the older Archie comics. I think this one feels much more modern while still keeping everything that is endearing about Archie. Veronica Fish's art on this is really, really great. This book is is a tour de force for her art and for Mark Wade's writing. Mark Wade is really good at giving you emotional moments that ring true. The basic plotline of this one is, of course, Archie and Veronica are dating and her dad doesn't like that, so he's trying to break them up. There's a scene where she swears to her dad that she's not dating Archie anymore. And then he finds like a red hair on her her clothes. And she's like, oh, that's my cat. She's like, what? <laughs> and he's like, you don't have a cat. She's like, oh, dad, if you really cared about me, you would know about my cat. And then she storms off, calls Archie, and then they go to the pet store to try and buy a cat that will have like a similar hair color. That to me is like you. This is where you start seeing the, what I like about her art. Is there's all these little little details that are kind of happening in the the corner of the panels that they don't really call too much, but are add nice little details. The cat's face when there's a little girl holding him. The wrong way to hold a cat, where you basically pick it up by its front two legs and hold it up, um, which is like all little kids pick up cats. And you can see the look on this cat's face. It is not happy. Yeah. So I appreciated that little uh, image of the cat. I thought it was pretty funny. Then there's also a scene, Jughead and Archie are playing catch with Hot Dog in the, the park, and they keep throwing things to the dog. And the dog will run off to go get them and then bring them back something completely different that they then throw off and he brings back something different. So I thought that was a nice little, like, first they throw a baseball and he runs back and brings them, like, a tree branch. And they throw the tree branch and he runs off and brings it back like a squirrel. Just nice little funny touches like that. And then, of course, the thing with Archie is, like, torn between Betty and Veronica. And there's a scene where Veronica is trying to help him fix his car and she has her new, her boyfriend that she's hanging out with. And there's this scene where the boyfriend is, like, handing her tools so she can work on the car. And there's that like moment where like their hands touch and he has to kind of watch it and he looks pretty bummed out about that, you know, but he has a girlfriend so can't really say anything. I felt this book was really good at giving you lots of points of view. Like, even the parents in this, their concerns and motivations felt pretty believable to me. The dad, that's part of uh, Lodge's plan to break up uh, Archie and Veronica, is he's going to, he hired Archie's dad to make him like a manager in Singapore and is going to send them there to, for like a year to break them up. Archie's not happy about it, but he can't say anything about it because. You know, his dad's like a working schlub and, you know, someone finally thought his spreadsheet that he designed was super awesome. And this is going to give him the chance to actually pay for Archie's college. So he feels like he can't say anything about it because it would crush his dad to know that the, the only reason he's been given this like opportunity is to break up his, you know, son's relationship. So that to me was like an interesting moment. Like you also see there's a scene where there's like all these like overdue bills, like sitting on a chair, you know, just just little touches like that where it makes it more more realistic to me. There's also I mean, there's there's all kinds of 
craziness going on. Overall, I think it does a good job of balancing all those things. And then finally at the end, Archie gets super pissed off and storms into Lodge Manor or Mansion and tells, you know, Mr. Lodge off that he's standing up to to bullies and that he's going to win and he's not going to break his dad's heart. And it's it's really awful what he's doing. And of course, the kind of the twist of the, the thing is Archie's dad is sitting in the other room and hears the whole thing. And then he tells... Veronica's dad that he can shove it that he doesn't like bullies and doesn't like being used and he's not going to go for that so I thought it was a nice little touch there and then the last page has two of my favorite panels I've seen in a while. Ones where Veronica shows up at his door, and it kind of reminds me a lot of the scene with Mary Jane first meets Peter Parker, where she's like, you know, face it, uh, Tiger. That one where she stands there and she's like, you can kiss me. And then they have a panel of like the little heart with them kissing, I thought was a really nice panel. And then there's, I've said it before, one of my favorite things in comics is emotion throughout a panel. And there's a page here where Veronica is hanging out at Archie's house and she's kind of running around, looking at everything, saying how quaint and charming it all is. And then she's like, where's the billiard room. I'm like, yep, you are so out of touch with what reality is actually like. So I enjoyed Archie very much. What did you think about it, Rory? I loved it, actually. Archie is probably one of the comic books I ever collected as a kid. You know, my grandma used to get me, like, all these different varieties of comic books. She didn't really know what she was looking at, so... It's in the 25-cent bin, yeah. Yeah, probably. Uh, (laughs) Archie was actually one that I actually really enjoyed. It's always kind of been an interesting thing. You've got Archie traditionally kind of... I guess a knothead is kind of, like, the best way to say it. You know, he's a charming character but he's kind of dumb you have veronica who's the hot girl that he's always after but she's kind of stuck up and kind of a bitch then you have betty who's super nice but you know he's just not as into her and whatnot i thought it was kind of interesting the way they transformed the character veronica is more of like you know she's they're pointing out that she's like super wealthy and stuff like that uh betty they change into a gearhead girl which i thought that that was a good way of illustrating the differences between the two in a more profound way than the 1950s well this one's a blonde this one's a brunette which one do you want yeah (laughs) they have things different about them other than just their appearance yeah yeah exactly it kind of made it more of kind of like a modern correlation like to when you've the girl next door that you've got the hots for and then you've got super hot girl and it's like you can't really choose between them i like that jughead that's probably my favorite part is the conversion of jughead to modern times because he still looks very fucking jughead but they managed to modern him up quite a bit and you know he's always kind of been like a favorite character of mine i don't know i I generally loved it it's kind of like different getting used to the artwork at first because it's so different from what the old comic books used to look like it was just a definitely a great archie story and it brings i think it holds really true to the old characters but modernizing them in a way that makes things a little bit more meaningful if you're not all into happy days like i am yeah and i think that it really pays tribute it honors those characters but it it updates them like it's not you know we're gonna make them all you know super edgy and archie's gonna be he's gonna ride a skateboard around and be extreme like it's not like that at all i ended up giving it three and a half orange furs which is veronica's new cat i'm kind of with you on that one i enjoyed it i think it's definitely a good read if you are or not into archie i think it's definitely worth a spin but at the same time it's not super groundbreaking or anything like that I'm going to give it three and a half Jughead's goofy fucking hat. Or it's sweet, but grounded. Three and a half hot Veronica's, three and a half <laughs> greasy, sweaty Betty's. However you want to do it. That is the eternal dilemma, right? Is it Betty or Veronica? Couldn't decide, so I can understand how Archie has such a hard time. It's, it's kind of like parallels my life to a certain extent. <laughs> 
All right, so you're taking us back to the south. But, uh, yeah, we're going back to the south again. This time uh, it's going to be Harrow County number 12, Dark Horse, uh, written by Bun, art by Hannah Christensen. Once again, as usual, the disclaimer, I've never read any of the previous Harrow Counties, so I like horror stories a lot. So by reading the description of the comic, that's what I basically got for it. So I felt this one stood alone. I've been reading Harrow County, but I think this one is pretty much a standalone story. You no, know, it felt like that. I was, I was kind of hoping that that would be typical for the whole run of the comic, but I guess we'll have to see when I go back and read previous issues. So it starts off with the main character. She is walking through. Now, this is like kind of set in like, I don't know exactly the time period, but it looks like kind of like a 1920s era. Seems like very Depression era. If you saw the Jodes from Grapes of Wrath go driving by in the background, it would totally fit in this time period. Yeah. You know, it starts off, you've got this shack out in like kind of the edge of the woods and there's all the wind blowing around. It, you know, it definitely gives you like a dust bowl era. She goes walking by some lady and, you know, apparently this used to be her hometown. And so she walks by and she waves at some lady hanging her clothes on, on the clothesline. And the lady like spits twice on the ground, you know, which is like a ward against foul spirit. Runs away all pissed off, but then she stops and is like, oh, where's my manners? You know, you know, welcome back. Then she goes and she goes to this house where she's been uh, asked to go. And apparently the house is haunted and it's kind of been bugging this family's kids. So she, you know, says hello to the children and talks to them for a few minutes. Talks to little girl Gertie who has a, uh, she has this doll and so they kind of have a conversation about, you know, how the, you know, the doll keeps her company and stuff like that when, when her brothers won't play with her. Eventually, she decides to go inside and the little girl says that she's going to, you know, leave the doll here, you know, because she doesn't want to go inside. Here, she says she's perfectly comfortable sitting inside, which is a little foreshadowing there. They come in, she talks with, with the parents and they talk about how they have everybody in for dinner and whatnot. And they kind of tell her how since they've been moving in, there's this ghost that every night shows up and tries to lure the children. Out of, out of their rooms and then when it doesn't when none of them fall for it well then it kind of goes you know starts going nuts and making all kinds of racket and whatnot so she's asking questions from like the kids and stuff and so she looks to this other one and goes what about you you've been awful quiet and everybody's like who are you talking to that was so awesome and creepy horror movie-esque I love that part. Like, I was actually just looking through it while you were talking, and there's a scene where she walks up and she's talking to the kids, and you see the two boys sitting on, like, a made-up, homemade, like, teeter-totter, basically. And I just realized that the other kid, who the one who's being held up in the air, is actually the ghost. So that's why the teeter-totter is not, like, balanced. Just little details like that that you don't think about the first time you see, and then you go back and you're like, oh, shit, that's creepy as hell. So the ghost bursts into flames, and then all kinds of weird shit starts going on around out in the kitchen eventually the little girl gertie gets lured off up the stairs and she goes running after the main character who i'm still not sure what the hell her name is she goes running upstairs you know telling her that this thing's it's trying to lure us separately so that you know it could get to us when we're alone and and then the house is like i didn't do that to get her (laughs) it turns out that this thing was trying to get her all along then this like big crack in the wall opens up and there's like all these little like dead children in the wall yeah like glowing dead creepy fucking children and they start grabbing at her and grabbing at the little girl eventually this is the crazy thing is that they're you know everybody's running and eventually they get out and ghost children materialize when they come near the door i'm not sure
if that has to do with her having a power because she says, don't you touch me, go away, and then they all like kind of fizzle. Or if it, it's because uh, the light from the door, from the front door, was hitting them. Well, she's, she's a witch, so I don't know what... Yeah, they, they didn't really clarify on that one, so I'm not really sure what happens. Uh, when she goes out, says, you know, the ho- the house reared up like a twisted spider, the groan of the twisting, crapping timbers like a roar. It was a trap spring shut and angry that its prey had slipped away. So it turns out that this wasn't a haunted house. It was the whole damn house was haunted. A haint, apparently, which is kind of like it's a haunted house. It's like a couple inches away from the butthole. Um... <laughs> 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 that's what they call everything that's like supernatural here is haints yeah or haunts or however however they say it makes sense they're they're hard to find they're sweaty they're nasty yeah oh god we keep it classy on here don't we <laughs> oh yeah i've got standards to keep and they're low you know that's that's basically where the issue ends up i fucking loved it i mean the artwork once again i was talking earlier about how it's kind of rough artwork but it really lends to the story. It's, I mean, go figure, we're still in the South, right? Roughish artwork, you know, but it's obviously intentionally done, and it does definitely lend to the story and kind of, like, gives it that old-timey, you know, creepy ghost story-type feel to it. The colors are nice. The story's just excellent. I really enjoyed it. I'm going to give it four creepy dolls on this one. I've been reading Harrow County for a while. I haven't read every single issue. The basic overall plot that I think is the only thing you would miss if you just jumped in on this right now is there's this witch um, that basically keeps getting like reincarnated in this town before this girl was born all the like adults in the town found the last witch and murdered the shit out of her burned her alive hung her drowned her did like everything and then that night this girl was born so now the whole town has been watching her to see if she's the reincarnation of this witch that she's like the reborn witch the end where they say that the doll told her that's the name of the first witch so she's trying to to kill her so the story stands really on its own whether you knew that or not you know you didn't know that necessarily what the big reveal was in the end and it didn't matter in terms of the the story there's also uh, you know she carries that little messenger bag that kind of talks to her so in that messenger bag there's the skin of basically a dead child that can move around that she has captured and it can see things like she can see through the eyes of the skinned child like there's lots of creepy things in this book so Mm. if you know, animated skinned children and creepy dolls and houses filled with dead children in the walls. If all those things sound interesting to you, well, Harrow County is your book for it. I also like that the story is set somewhere we don't really see a lot of stories from. It's in a time and a place that are unique. So I think it tells, it gives you an opportunity to have a supernatural story where the person figuring everything out isn't some academian in like a library. It's a girl with like rural folks, you know, tales about Definitely. things <laughs> to try and make sense of the world that she has. So I, I like it. I, I really do like it. I think it's creepy. It does a really good job of telling horror stories that are pretty disturbing without being necessarily like grotesque and bloody, but just disturbing imagery and, and things. I ended up giving it three and a half ghost children. Yeah, that was another thing that, that I thought was funny that really fucking kind of creeped me out was that later on when they revealed that the, you know, the house is a trap and 
she like realizes that oh no wonder the doll said that it didn't want to go in you know it's like no way in hell i'm going in there yeah because if her plan had worked right like the house would have swallowed them all up and like went down into the ground and doll is the person who set the trap so it knows don't go in there gotcha see that part i didn't catch but i was like when the doll don't want to go in the house stay the fuck out (laughs) yeah when creepy dolls are afraid it is really time to be afraid (laughs) 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 yeah just a little little pro tip there. If the animated doll that only talks to children is suddenly afraid of something, <laughs> you should probably be afraid. You might want to stay outside. <laughs> so another thing that you should be afraid of is Death Darth Vader. I had Star Wars uh, Darth Vader number 20. It's by Marvel Comics. It's written by Karen Gillan. Art by Salvador La Roca. Colors by uh, Edgar Delgado. This one, I'm really glad to see... Darth Vader making a return to what I think are the best parts of Darth Vader, which really are the two killer droids they have and Dr. (laughs) Aphra. Those are, those are definitely to me the best parts of the book. There's this inspector who's another character that I really enjoy that they made. He's like the only character I felt that has really been a match for Vader because each arc is basically some, some idiot in the empire thinking they're going to take down Darth Vader and just getting their asses handed to them. He's smarter than they are. He thinks more steps ahead than them. He's physically more powerful. He's got the force on his side. You're not going to take him down, but everyone tries. But this inspector has been really slowly and methodically gathering information about what's happened. Like, he he reminds me a lot of, like, Columbo. Like, he's, like, kind of like the Star Wars version of, like, just one more question. (laughs) So, in this one, he basically tells Vader that he knows that he and Dr. Aphra are the ones who robbed the Imperial shuttle that had all the, like, artifacts of the the Dark uh, Sith stuff on it and all the money that Vader has been using to finance his stuff. But he tells him that he knows that the Emperor is a Sith Lord and it's... But he's made mistakes, in, in the Inspector's opinion, and Vader would be better to be in charge. So he tells Vader, basically, I'm going to give you all this information... I could have basically anonymously, I don't know what the Star Wars version of email it to you is, but, you know, hologram it to you or whatever. Could have done that, and then you'd spend a bunch of time trying to hunt me down and kill me, but I think it's more important that you spend your time trying to overthrow the Emperor, so just basically just kill me right now, which Vader, of course, does. He obliges and cuts him down with a lightsaber, which I don't know how I feel about that, because I really like that character, and I kind of respect that what he's what he's trying to do, that he trying to serve the Empire by overthrowing the Emperor, and that he he recognizes Vader as the person who can do that, so he wants Vader to have, you know, all the information and focus he needs to do that. Plus, the scene of Vader actually killing him with his lightsaber is pretty awesome. Yeah. Like, it's a full panel of Vader, you know, swinging his lightsaber, and you see his little, like, walking stick, like, flying off in the air as he gets, like, chopped in half, but you don't actually see him dying. It's, It's an interesting... It's like a view from the inspector's point of view. And then you've got all this stuff going on with the droids, who are some of the best (laughs) new characters I've seen in any comic. Uh, So you've got the Triple Zero and BT, and they're basically going trying to get repaired from all the damage that happened to them when they fought with, in the Star Wars Darth Vader crossover that happened, where, like, the assassin droid, like, got his arms ripped off by Chewbacca, and, like, all that kind of stuff happened to them. So they find one of Dr. Aphra's associates who can repair them. They get him to repair them. And then there's a, a part where they basically disabled the overrides on his killer droids so that they could, they can attack him if they want to. And they're, like, walking away, and they're like, well, if he's been nice to his droids, 
nothing will happen. But if he's been an asshole to them, he's going to get what's coming to him. And then, like, in the background, there's just, like, all these huge explosions and fire. Oh, and you're like, oh, I guess he was not cool to them. <laughs> so that's kind of like a subplot they've been doing in a lot of these books is, like, the droids having this, like, secret rebellion going on. The art is fantastic on this. Um, Salvador La Roca is, is an amazing artist. Really epic Star Wars imagery. Really nice face acting on a lot of the characters. The book's funny. Um, it has dramatic moments. It's got really awesome imagery in it. I am really glad to see Darth Vader back on track. I have been shitting on most of the Star Wars comic books since I started here, and this is the first one that I'm actually really, really happy with. You know, my responses went from, like, you know, droids, which I really just didn't like all that much at all, to, like, you know, kind of... Oh, the C-3PO one? Yeah, to kind of moderate with the last one, and then the Princess Leia one I liked quite a bit. This one I freaking love. First of all, of course, you got Darth Vader in his, all of his prime glory. Like you said, it's, like, funny that people try and out outwit him and it's like you know vader's not just a bunch of muscles you know he's he's intelligent he's physically powerful just physically dangerous he's also the the galaxy's strongest user of the force ever you know it's like you can't really get much past the guy but yet you have this normal man who like you said is a kind of like a columbo-esque type character that's uh, discovered all this stuff and put it in his hands just for the good of the Empire. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. The droids, I mean, uh, you know, most of the droid stories are kiddish, and so this is like the first time that I was like, oh, thank God they finally gave a good droid plot arc. He's going to get his mods from, uh, from this other guy, and so they start talking, and then he's like, oh, I've got a list of modifications I want to make. Oh, you're a protocol droid. What, what do you need a syringe for? And he's all... For medical emergencies. <laughs> and then I like his response where he's like, well, I didn't lie to him. I didn't say all of them or cause them. And it's like, oh, you need missile launchers, electric pulsers, poisons. He's all, hmm, you need this for a protocol droid. Huh? He's like, oh, yes. He's like, oh, okay, no problem. Here, I'll get to work. <laughs> Let me just take these arms off you real quick. And he's like, all right, now that you're unarmed. <laughs> There's a part uh, in a couple when they first start introducing the droids where they talk about how they basically have removed all of the actual protocol droid stuff from him. So he's not not very good yeah. at like diplomacy, but he's still or, or actually very smart. Like he's very he's a very clever assassin and like saboteur. The other things that you expect a protocol droid to do, he can't really do. But yeah. he still likes to play, uh, you know that chess game that C-3PO and Chewie play on the Millennium Falcon? Mm. He still likes to play that game, but he doesn't actually have any programming oh, uh, for great. it. So he intentionally <laughs> loses, so that when he shakes the person's hand to congratulate them, he can poison them and kill them. They're just, they're really fun. <laughs> they're really fun little characters. Hearing all of his uh, talk with this engineer here is, is fucking great. You know, I was just constantly laughing throughout the entire time because he's like, you know, oh, there happens to be this particular droid that they had taken away all of its uh, ethical circuitry and da 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 and turned him into an assassin droid. Problem is, he got away and murdered, you know, murdered them all and then went on this huge uh, killing spree across the galaxy. And he's like, well, at least it sounds like he had a fantastic time. <laughs> Every time I hear him saying these horrible, creepy things, I just I hear C three C three PO's voice saying it. It's like Psycho C three PO. It is so fucking great. Oh man, this was just so good. There's just so many good parts to it between you know the interaction with Darth Vader and yeah the Inspector because he he dies so quickly in this one, and then uh, this guy's name's Thrun, the uh, the guy who's doing the mods, you know, but with the droids. That's a f great the. Art Artwork is fantastic. 
The storyline is fantastic. I mean, I, I couldn't I couldn't have loved this one any more than I did. You know, this is this is what I've been looking for the entire freaking run that we've done with the uh, with the Star Wars con. Yeah, I don't know if you remember last week we were talking about uh, Wicked and Divine. And you just basically were looking through the artwork, and I was telling you the writing is as good as the artwork. That's by Kieran Gillen, same person who wrote this. So if you like this writing, you'll get a lot of that in Wicked and Divine, too. Yeah, it's, it's definitely just great. I'll give it a good four finger needles. Oh, man, you took what I... You did it to me. You took what I was going to use. Revenge! <laughs> I will give it four triple zero protocols. All right, that's all we got, right? That's it. Oh, shit, look at that. All right, those were the books we read this week. Uh, to check our weekly pool list and other nerd shenanigans, go and check out fourcolorednerds.com. We also have a Facebook page. Or we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. And all as all four color nerds you can you can find the podcast on itunes google play music on soundcloud make sure to subscribe to the podcast make sure to come back next week for another episode until then keep on reading nerds yeah y'all come back now you hear <laughs> <laughs>